The Truth News Network. A president leaves 300,000 guns on the ground to be picked up by the Taliban and then lectures us on the responsibility of gun ownership? Of course, this is the same man signing bills into law denying the biology of sex, confusing the right to decide which bathroom to use, stating anyone who doesn't agree is a terrorist and should be red flagged into oblivion? Clearly someone needs a good strong shot of the truth. Good thing we're here. We're TNN. The Truth News. Network. And here's Dan Newman. I got this. I got it for you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Midweek. It is a busy week, and we have a busy day here. Of course, most of you heard the Oath Keepers trial, those five Oath Keepers that have been on trial in District Court, Washington, D.C. The verdicts came in yesterday. Our very own Steve Baker was there. He came out of the courtroom right after the verdicts were all read, and he's going to join us at the bottom of the hour, 9.30 Central Time, to break down for you what happened. i got to be honest with you. You better hold on because you're not going to believe what you're going to hear actually happen. It's made national news. Yeah, it is. It's a big deal. But what you're hearing is a version of, of the news. And I'm going to let you hear. I think, let's see, I think I'm trying to figure out which broadcast network it is. Uh, we're going to do this going into our segment at the bottom of the hour with Steve Baker. I'm going to let you hear what the broadcast network reported early this morning about uh, this whole trial and what it was about. You're only going to hear one perspective. I know that shocks you, but the perspective you're going to to hear from the broadcast network leaves out a lot of very important things. And when I heard the verdicts that came back when Steve called me and gave them to me yesterday, I just shook my head. I cannot believe in the United States of America, these guys, Oath Keepers, and the reason they're Oath Keepers, that's the title of their group, is because they all took a military oath of office. When they got out of service, they wanted to continue to execute on their oath of office to the United States of America. None of them had a gun that day. Not one. FBI even went to their hotel rooms and just tore their hotel rooms apart looking for guns. I mean, if they're going to be insurrectionists and take over the government, you would think they would go to Washington, D.C. with at least one gun, right? No gun. But yet, They were convicted. You can probably tell I'm all amped up about this. I'm amped up about a lot of things, and I hope you are too. We're ending Thanksgiving month and just segueing right into Christmas month tomorrow. This is a time of year. It's good. It's bad. Everybody on earth has got a particular perspective, their very own, about this time of year. Mine's mixed. I have a great family. My uh, wife and my kids love Christmas. Now, when I say my kids, my baby, Caleb, was born in 1980. You do the math. He's 42 years old. My baby is 42 years old. But anyway, they grew up in a home where we celebrated Christmas. We did everything. Decorated the house to the nines. 
when when we lived up on the lake north of Benton, Louisiana, we uh, we had a big house with Annie Bellum style, you know, two story with the columns and the porches and all that kind of stuff. I think Marianne decorated seven Christmas trees were scattered all over the house. And it was just beautiful. And we love that. Always have loved that. We don't live in that size home anymore. It just got to be too much for two people. And so the home we're living in now, decorated to the nines on a smaller scale, it's the spirit of this time of year. The spirit, not not of uh, getting, but the spirit of sharing, sharing good things, looking for somebody that has it less than you do, and maybe smiling, maybe patting them on the back, wishing them a great holiday season. Those are the kind of things. Get outside yourselves. Look for someone that is not as well off as you and find ways to insert your good life into others. And it doesn't have to be through making big checks, donations. It doesn't have to be that. Those are always welcome. There are a lot of people in your world, your world, I mean your world that you come in contact with on a daily basis that need a smile, but they need a little more than a smile. Find a family, a family with children specifically if you can, and do something for that family. Make it meaningful for them. Make them feel and see the spirit of Christmas coming from somebody else into their lives. I don't care how bad you have it. There's somebody that's got it worse than you in your world. I don't care how good you've got it. There's somebody that's got it better than you do in your world. Just be who you're supposed to be in your world. And all these other things are going to work out. I promise you, seek ye first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Start Right there. That's the best way to start. And and then call on God and say, God, you promised. I'm waiting for the other stuff. I am serving you honestly. I'm seeking your will for my life. And so you said all these other things will be added unto me. I'm looking for them. Thank you in advance, God. Always be thankful. Well, Steve Baker will join us at the bottom of the hour, I told you. He's going to bring you up to date on the exact details, and it's pretty much not what you hear in mainstream media. I did something I don't usually have time for. I was at a meeting this morning, a prayer meeting, and driving back, I listened to Fox and Friends, and uh, Brian Kilmeade, I guarantee you, he became my hero this morning. They were interviewing Admiral John Kirby, who is one of the upper White House spokespersons to the media. And Kirby came on, and he was talking about all the things that are going on over there, Afghanistan, and of course, it keeps coming up all the time about how the United States withdrew out of Afghanistan and what happened in the aftermath. And Brian Kilmeade, he just couldn't couldn't tolerate it anymore. He confronted Admiral Kirby, about that withdrawal by the United States. And they got into it back and forth, which you don't typically see, even from Brian Kilmeade and somebody in the Biden administration. I, up until we went on the air just minutes ago, I tried to find somewhere where I could get that audio soundbite, 
and play it for you so you could hear it. You probably didn't have time. You're probably on your way to work to hear it yourselves. I'll find it later, maybe before the end of the show, I'll be able to play it for you. But he got right in Kirby's face. And look, that was and still is a horrible thing that happened to America. I got to be honest with you. Joe Biden, regarding foreign policy, military policy, across the board, he is the worst president of our lifetimes. I'm 69, my lifetime. There's not been another this bad. And he's not a leader, Joe Biden. What did he do yesterday? He was in Michigan and he was telling everybody there what a great job his administration is doing. That in the face of four to five dollars a gallon for gasoline, and that when unemployment, when that report comes out, the next one, it's going to go through the roof. Big companies are shelling employees left and right. Why is that? Cash flow is gone through the tank, and Joe Biden's up there taking a victory lap, and he's telling Congress or trying to tell Congress that they've got to force the railroads to give these union members a new contract. The government does not have that power. They cannot force railroads to do what the government wants them to do. We're not in an emergency situation. And oh, by the way, you remember right before the election, two weeks before the election, Joe Biden told us, I took care of that railway thing. We got a deal done. He lied. There is no deal. There was no deal. And nobody in the mainstream media will hold him accountable for that. He's got John Kirby out there doing damage control. And Kirby's not doing too good a job. I could not believe Admiral Kirby brought up in the Afghanistan thing how successful the withdrawal was. And Brian Kilmeade said, are you kidding me? He actually said that. And then Kirby got in Kilmeade's face over it. It wasn't in his face. I'm speaking uh, kind of just demonstratively there. They were talking it through, and Kirby bounced back. And he said, come on, Brian. We've been through this over and over and again. We did a good job. Nobody can question that. And Kilmeade said 12 military members were killed at the gates of the airport there with a suicide bomber. Brian, he didn't take it far enough to illustrate how crazy that withdrawal from Afghanistan was. There are all kinds of things that point to that. But the one that just stuck in my craw was that suicide bomber. He used C-4 explosives in that vest that he wore. And you can trace all kinds of explosives after a blast happens, they can get the, the uh, remnants of it and they can test the C4 and know where it came from. Guess where that C4 came from that was put in that suicide bomb that killed 13 American soldiers? It came from Bagram Air Base. You know, the one that Joe Biden had just pulled out of days earlier and left all that C4 all kinds of other equipment, military equipment, left it there. And John Kirby's up there taking a victory lap. I got to be honest with you. This administration 
has just flat lost it. They are detached from reality. And all Joe Biden can think about is running for re-election. Yesterday in Michigan, when he was speaking to those people, he got after Donald Trump. He's thinking that in 2024, Biden's going to be running against Donald Trump. Let me just say this. The book's still out on Trump running in 2024. He faces some of the same things, the pushback on his age, as does Joe Biden. They're about the same age. Now, granted, Trump is much spryer. He's way, way, way more into his actual mental and emotional state than is Joe Biden. And nobody can credibly make an allegation that Donald Trump has cognitive disability, as does Joe Biden. Meanwhile, President Biden's got some stuff he's got to deal with. Republicans are taking over the House January 3rd. He's going to be looking down the barrel of some well-structured, already-in-place processes to hold him and his son accountable for some corruption, and it looks like very obvious criminal activity. Ted Cruz yesterday got into the grill of one of Joe Biden's State Department officials. I was going to tell you about it, but why don't you just listen in? You have been outspoken throughout your career uh, speaking against corruption, And and I want to talk about corruption. I want to talk in particular about corruption in the current administration. And I have serious concerns about corruption of President Joe Biden that extends for considerable time, both his time as president and his time as vice president. To take one obvious and troubling example, accounts linked to the Biden family's personal finances received millions of dollars through ties to CEFC China Energy. This is where we get the infamous quote about 10% to the big guy from the Chinese communists. But you've also been involved very directly with Ukraine and corruption in Ukraine. And I will say, you showed real courage speaking out against what I think was the very obvious concerns of corruption of Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden in Ukraine in particular. On November 13th, 2019, you testified to Congress that you had become concerned with Hunter Biden's status as a board member of the Ukrainian natural gas company, Burisma. You said you had raised those concerns to the White House in February of 2015. And in particular, what you said is, I became aware that Hunter Biden was on the board of Burisma. Soon after that, in a briefing call with the national security staff of the office of the vice president in February of 2015, I raised my concern that Hunter Biden's status as a board member could create a perception of a conflict of interest. Tell me, why did you have this concern about, as you described, a perception of a conflict of interest? Well, Senator, I can give you and every member of this committee uh, my uh, commitment that I will always raise concerns uh, to members of any administration and to Congress uh, when I have uh, concerns. And so I was made aware of information, and I passed that along to the staff of 
the office of the vice president. And so, so why were you concerned? Why were you concerned about Hunter Biden being on the board of Burisma? The issue at hand was the owner of the company's Lachevsky uh, had awarded himself gas contracts. And as I testified both uh, in the impeachment hearings and uh, in the Johnson-Grassley hearings of 2020, uh, our concern was about uh, the corrupt acts of Zlachevsky, the ex-minister, and uh, the FBI had been pursuing uh, freezing his assets. And it was uh, in the interest of the United States to uh, remain at the gold standard of our own uh, actions. So the Ukrainian oligarch who owned Burisma, there was very substantial evidence of corruption on his part. And he named Hunter Biden to his board of directors. To your knowledge, does Hunter Biden speak Ukrainian? I've never talked to uh, Hunter Biden, no. To your knowledge, did he have any knowledge before serving on that board about anything concerning oil or natural gas? I'm not aware of his CV. To your knowledge, did Hunter Biden have any qualification whatsoever for that board job other than the fact that his daddy was the sitting vice president at the time? Uh, Senator, I, no one consulted me about who was on the board of uh, Burisma. There was another American, Kofor Black, who was a former... Okay, I, I asked a question. To your knowledge, did, did Hunter Biden have any qualification to be on that board other than the job his daddy had at the moment? I am not familiar with his resume, sir. Okay. He was paid $83,000 a month by this Ukrainian oligarch. You're an expert in Ukraine. Have you ever been paid $83,000 a month? I'm a public servant, sir. I've never served on a corporate board. So does that mean, no, you haven't been paid $83,000 a month? I have not been paid $83,000 a month, no, sir. So, look, the concern here is not Hunter Biden's own problems, but rather it is official corruption from the then Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, and now the President of the United States, Joe Biden. Let me ask you, while his son was on the board of Burisma making a million dollars a year, did Joe Biden do anything that benefited the corrupt oligarch who was paying his son? Uh, Vice President Biden led our efforts to fight corruption in Ukraine. Let me ask you the question again. Did Vice President Joe Biden do anything that benefited the corrupt oligarch who was paying his son a million dollars a year? He did not. He did not. Well, it's interesting. Someone who disagrees with you, Mr. Kent, is Joe Biden. And I want to read from what he said on January 23rd, 2018 at the Council of Foreign Relations. Quote, this is Joe Biden speaking. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev. And I was supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I'd gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, the prosecutor that was investigating Burisma. And they didn't. So Biden continues. I said, no, I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion dollars. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was about six hours. I looked at them and said, I'm leaving here in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch, he got fired. Let me ask you something. Do you think Joe Biden holding a billion dollars hostage to force the Ukrainian government to fire the prosecutor that is investigating the corrupt oligarch who's paying his son a million dollars a year, did getting that prosecutor fired benefit that oligarch? Thank you, Senator Cruz. Senator Van Are Hall. you going to allow him to answer the question, Madam Chairman? I am not going to allow him to answer the question. I'm Why are you covering for the I'm, vice president? Do you not I'm want not, him to answer that question? 
He said that, that the vice president has nothing to benefit I think the it's unfortunate for you, Senator Cruz, to put in position that are uncomfortable the nominees to be our ambassadors. Okay, this is because his they sworn have, testimony. This is I his sworn that. testimony. And I he, understand that and you want to cover for the vice president. That he is going to raise those concerns anytime. Was his testimony he has true or false that Biden did nothing to benefit the oligarch? Let him answer the question. Was. Why are you afraid of him answering the question? I'm not. I just want to move on. But you won't let him answer. I, I started... asked a yes/no question. Will you allow him to answer the yes/no question? Yes, you can answer yes or no. Thank you. The prosecutor who was fired by the Ukrainian parliament did nothing to investigate Slachevsky and everything that Vice President Biden, the State Department, and the U.S. Embassy did acted in good faith to reduce corruption and help the Ukrainian so people. So firing him did not benefit the. Thank Obama. you, Senator Cruz. There you go. That's an example of what you get when Democrats are in power. The chairman of that committee, you heard, tried to cut that ambassador wannabe to Ukraine, stop that person from answering the yes or no question. Because if he answered it truthfully, it was obviously, at least she felt it would, denigrate the now president. Joe Biden. That's a world we find ourselves living in, folks. And it's uncomfortable sometimes when facts come out. But facts, they live in a vacuum. They don't need your help to confirm them. They just need for you to put them out there and let all of the ancillary information be out there so that people can see facts that live in a vacuum. We live in a media world, and I'm part of it, and I apologize for some of my compadres that are uh, doing it the way that I'm about to tell you, but they think we're needy, that we need, instead of just truth, give us a jaded perspective of what the truth we're hearing really means. And of course, the only perspective that matters is theirs. They think you're too stupid to listen to facts and draw your own conclusions in the context of which you know when you get the facts. That's the world we live in. And unfortunately for many, many millions of people in the United States, their source for the facts that they digest are mainstream media outlets, and therefore everything comes in, it's jaded. It's a perspective rather than just giving us facts and letting us make our own conclusions. I don't know a single person on this planet that has the truth about what happened Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Burisma Holdings, and the firing of that prosecutor. Everybody's heard it. Everybody's heard the now President Joe Biden brag about the fact that he held the then president of Ukraine, held him hostage, forcing him, forcing him to fire a prosecutor to protect his own son from being exposed in a Ukrainian investigation of the company Burisma Holdings, on which Hunter Biden served on the board of directors, making $83,000 a month. And the committee chair... You heard her. You don't have to answer that. You don't have to answer that because it would make the president, the now president, 
look bad. Listen, Joe Biden doesn't need any help in looking bad. He's really good at making himself looking bad all the time. All you have to do is put a microphone in front of him and he's going to bury himself over and over and over again. And still nobody wants to hold him accountable. To be honest with you, the Hunter Biden investigations, which probably almost certainly are going to implicate the president in these investigations, I think they're already underway. A new poll shows that 62% of Americans want Republicans to investigate Hunter Biden. They've been waiting a long time. The same report added that 61% believe the president knew about his son's China business dealings. Hmm. Jason Chaffetz joins me now. Jason, you're with us for the entire hour, which is great. So let me begin with that story. Republicans say there will be an investigation, but how soon do you think it will actually happen? We've waited for a while, to say the least. Well, I think it's already actually in motion. You can do letters of preservation, and uh, James Comer and others have already put that in motion. So I think they've been hiring staff, uh, trying to get that staff up to speed. Uh, There are outside organizations doing their own types of investigations, um, and they'll get off to a roaring start, and it'll just be a matter of hours until the first uh, request for transcribed interviews and uh, depositions start to come in. How damning do you think it could be, Jason? Uh, I I think the information's already there. Remember, there are voicemails, there are emails, there are text messages, there are are videos. Uh, What people should understand is it's not as if Hunter Biden in week one is going to come testify. There are a myriad of other people who (laughs) see this. I think the banks are, from a business point of view, the banks are going to get these requests. There were 150 suspicious reports uh, given to the government that normally Congress has been able to see, but under the Biden administration, they have thwarted those uh, abilities. So they will be subpoenas issued to hmm. these banks to get these suspicious transactions between Biden family members in overseas banking interests. That is right. pivotal to the investigation and probably will expose as much as anything the flow of money. You know, I like Jason Chavitz a lot. I wish he was still in Congress. I wish he had stayed in the House Nevertheless, he's gone, and he's talking about what he's pretty sure is going to happen. i got to be honest with you. I don't have that confidence. I really don't. I don't think that people in the Congress are going to hold the president or anybody in his family, hold him accountable just because of the political bureaucratic machine in Washington, D.C. That machine has been on trial in the Oath Keepers trial. We're going to take our first break of the day. When we come back, Steve, oh, Steve Baker, he's going to join us live from Washington, D.C. He was in the courtroom yesterday when the Oath Keepers' verdicts came down. We're going to play, when we come back, that news story, mainstream news story, where they gave the information that came out of the verdicts yesterday, and then let Steve tell us what actually happened. That's all ahead. I'm a Verizon engineer, and today we're turning on 5G across the country, including right here in New York City. With the coverage of 5G nationwide and in more and more cities, the unprecedented performance of ultra-wideband. It will change your phone and how businesses do everything. I'm proud because we didn't build it the easy way. We built it right. 
This is the 5G America's been waiting for, only from Verizon. 5G Ultra Wideband available only in parts of select cities. 5G Nationwide available in 1,800 plus cities. Today on Hey Culligan, softer equals better. Here's a tweet from Ed Itchy in Idaho. Hey Culligan, my laundry is so scratchy, I just cut myself on a cable knit sweater. Any suggestions? Hashtag send help. Hey Ed Itchy in Idaho, yes, the Culligan high efficiency water softener will make that thing so soft, it'll go from cable knit to cable knot. Itchy. Hashtag soft laundry. Hashtag already on the way. Get started for as little as $10 a month for six months of participating Culligan dealers. If you think we're just four wheels in a grill, think again. The Jeep Grand Cherokee redefines freedom. But what really makes Jeep? It's finding the perfect balance between luxury and adventure without ever compromising. It's driving across the country to see your family, to make new memories. So, what makes Jeep? You do. Jeep. There's only one. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. The advanced surgeons at the Center for Innovative GYN Care look beyond quick fixes like birth control to help their patients find the best treatment options for complex GYN conditions. My name is Sakina, and I had the CIGC groundbreaking minimally invasive hysterectomy. I got back to my life in a week with only two small incisions and minimal scarring. Discover the CIGC difference with offices in Midtown Manhattan and Montclair, New Jersey. Telemedicine appointments are also available. Book a consultation at InnovativeGYN.com or call 888-SURGERY. This is the truth your mama warned you about. TNN. The Truth News Network, truthnewsnet.org, and Dan Newman. Well, I want to say um, my boy, Steve Baker, is on the phone with us now, but that's an insult here. He's not a boy, and he's not mine, but he is on the line with us. Are you there, Steve-O? Yeah, man, I'm here. Good morning. Well, you sound a little gravelly. You tired? Uh, yeah, there wasn't, there was not a lot of sleep last night. And, uh, we went out with, uh, some of the attorneys after the uh, verdicts last night and you can imagine what kind of shape they were in. Yeah. So, uh, there were some adult beverages. There were? I'm we not, went to the Capitol Grill. Oh, that's one of my <laughs> favorite of, restaurants in Washington, D.C. I love the Capitol yeah. Grill. As a matter of fact, uh, I heard, I was listening to your uh, uh, playback of Cruz grilling uh, somebody in the Senate here just a moment ago. Yeah. And uh, Ted Cruz was two tables over from us last night, and Senator Shelby was at the table next to us. And... Uh, <laughs> They seem to be in better spirits than the guys that I was having dinner with last night. Well, listen, you won't be able to hear this. I don't think uh, I can feed it down the line to you, but I want, this is about a two minute uh, Oath Keeper story that came out yesterday on one of the major networks. Um, I don't know if you can listen to it. I'll try to play it so you can hear it. But anyway, I want the folks to hear before you go into what really happened. So here we go. This morning, the leader of the Oath Keepers, a far-right political group, is facing many years in prison. Stuart Rhodes and other members of the group were convicted of multiple charges by a Washington, D.C. jury yesterday. They were accused of plotting the assault on the Capitol. Scott McFarland is outside the federal courthouse in Washington. Scott, good morning. I hear that rain in the background. 
Yeah, Nate, good morning. Nearly two years after the attack, a jury has convicted five members of the far-right Oath Creepers on federal charges, including the founder, Stuart Rhodes, on a Civil War-era charge of seditious conspiracy of plotting to block the peaceful transfer of power in America. It was a marathon, two-month-long trial involving Stuart Rhodes, founder of the far-right Oath Keepers, the most high-profile figure to date to face charges in connection with the deadly January 6th riot. Prosecutors showed messages and images of the Oath Keepers hatching a plan to equip themselves with tactical gear and to stage guns outside the Washington, D.C. city limits to mobilize if then-President Trump invoked the Insurrection Act. He was responding to things that the former president was saying. That makes it a titanic event that will be surely in the history books, this, this conviction for seditious conspiracy. Prosecutors also argued Rhodes talked of civil war and was the architect of a plan that included some members of the Oath Keepers breaching the Capitol in a military stack formation. It was all laid out in audio presented at trial. Rhodes took the stand in his own defense, arguing the group brought gear because they feared being targeted by left-wing agitators. But he didn't sway the federal jury that convicted both Rhodes and a top deputy, co-defendant Kelly Meggs, on multiple counts, including seditious conspiracy. Each man facing up to 20 years in prison on that charge alone. The jurors found three other Oath Keeper co-defendants not guilty of seditious conspiracy, but convicted them on other federal charges. Defense attorneys told CBS News they plan to appeal. Um, it goes without question, we're disappointed. A conviction for seditious conspiracy isn't just rare. The Department of Justice hasn't won one in nearly 30 years. And several other accused far-right group members face trial on that same charge in the coming weeks. And Gail, one of those trials will likely be underway here January 6, 2023. So that was the CBS version. Steve, could you hear that at all? I was able to get part of it, yes. Okay. So they talked about Stuart Rhodes and the one other Oath Keeper that were convicted of uh, sedition. And they played it up big to be like, oh, this is gargantuan. We caught him. We caught him. We caught him. I know, because you've kept me informed, that isn't what happened. Give us the skinny. Tell us what actually came out of the verdicts. Well, the first thing to look at when you're trying to analyze this thing, and it's going to take me a while to wrap my head around all of these uh, verdicts because some of them make no sense at all, especially because I'm so intimately familiar with all of the, the five, all five of the characters involved. And more importantly, I'm intimately familiar with the evidence that was presented against them and for them and what their participations were on January 6th and in the days, weeks, and months leading up to January 6th. Not only that, but some of the things that they did afterwards. Because there, there were uh, certainly legitimate tampering with document um, convictions. Though that did happen. The guys were scared. Obviously, everybody that was there on January 6th got scared. <laughs> and, and a lot of people, thousands of people started deleting videos and messages and um, uh, photography from their phones. And these are people that were not involved in any violence. And it's the same thing uh, with these guys as well. It, it was basically a knee-jerk reaction from a lot of people. They thought just being in, in Washington, D.C. that day was suddenly going to be criminalized. And for some people, that's exactly what happened. So there, there were um, appropriate, if we can call it that, uh, tampering convictions. 
But this seditious conspiracy thing is was so, so far from being proved by the government. But I also know, and you also know, that there was a lot of pressure on the players here. In fact, there is a, a report out this morning, and you're going to love this one. I just saw it first, one of the first things I read this morning, that Merrick Garland actually dropped in at the restaurant where the um, prosecutors were celebrating their victory last night to congratulate them. And you tell me that there's not pressure coming straight from the top. Well, you know, a victory lap by uh, the guy that has no credentials and he couldn't go in that courtroom and get anything done. Of course, that makes him eligible to be the uh, Attorney General of the United States. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. But when we when I when I look at this, um, somebody somebody made the uh, analogy last night that it looks like that the jury uh, put these charges up on a dartboard. And and when I look at this, it's almost believable. There there are. Uh, contradictions between some of these guilty and not guilty verdicts as it applies to the five different individuals. You know, they all had multiple counts against them. There's 13 total charges. Now, when you say 13, actually, uh, I think it's set, uh, charges seven through 13 are all actually the tampering charges, but it's varying levels of what type of um, information they deleted. So it's not, it's, it, it really is just a singular charge. But the uh, seditious conspiracy was count one, and only two of the guys, as you heard in that, that uh, CBS report, were found guilty of that. But the second guy, other than Stuart Rhodes, it makes no sense. I uh, sat there with the uh, – I was with four of the defense uh, attorneys last night with dinner. And we, we talked about this, and we talked about their, you know, their, their frustrations with the trial, their frustrations with the jury, and, and, and of course, obviously – how some of these convictions make no sense. And Kelly Meggs, for some reason, took the brunt of this. And he's the most mild-mannered, quiet, um, you know, basically, how, how, how other, how, what other way can you say it? Say it. He led a prayer. I mean, when he got the guys, when they walked into the rotunda, <laughs> they got down on their knees and they led a prayer. They stood up off of their knees off the, and got on their feet and then walked over and defended Officer Harry Dunn's position because Harry Dunn was defending a stairwell where down below where law enforcement officers that had been wounded that day in that battle on the West Terrace were getting triage. And he was defending that stairwell with an M4 automatic rifle and violent agitators were going after Dunn, trying to get down that staircase. A very, very dangerous situation because let's just call it the way it is, Officer Dunn was on at the breaking point himself. And we know that because we've seen the video leading up to that moment where he, he took position on that, stair, that stairwell. And the four Oath Keepers, including Kelly Meggs, took up position between him and those more agitated protesters and defused the situation, not just the crowd, but they defused him as well. They talked him down. And that circumstance right there is documented it's irrefutable we have video photographic evidence of that happening and this guy has been got more guilty verdicts than anybody else he he, he was uh, charged with six different crimes and he, they found him guilty on all three of the conspiracy charges and he's the only one even Stuart Rhodes was not found guilty on the other two uh, 
conspiracy charges. Let me ask you this. That happened. Let me ask you this. Did the jury see and hear any of what you just told us? Yes, absolutely. But the problem was, is that they believed Officer Dunn. When Officer Dunn took that stand, and this is what the jury watchers were telling us, is that they were enthralled with his version of the story. And of course, I've documented myself in my writings about this trial that Officer Dunn lied on the stand. I mean, and he's and he's a known liar with regards to January 6th because he's the guy who said that between 20 and 50 people were chanting the N-word at him and they're inside the Capitol. Now, this is the most videoed and most recorded event in human history, January 6th, and there's not a single audio or video file ever been presented by anyone. And you and I both know, Dan, if that audio existed of a group of Trump people chanting the N-word at a black law enforcement officer, we would have heard that on every January 6th story for the last 22 months. It would have been relentlessly played over and over and over and over again. I think it's realistic to say that didn't happen. The N-word wasn't uh, one of the bad things that happened that day. No. Mm-mm. But the, but they but the jury believed believed his testimony, and that that is my my I'll tell you what you know I we all kind of knew that if if there was going to be a guy hung up and if there was going to be a scapegoat we knew that it was going to be uh, Elmer Stewart Rhodes the third the leader the founder of the Oath Keepers we knew that because he had that language he and he was the founder and he was the leader and he had that kind of uh you know civil war is coming revolutionary war type rhetoric that he used all the time and he uh more than once petitioned president trump at the time the president to invoke the insurrection act and when he when when rhodes said and this was the last thing the jury saw i think we talked about this yesterday the last thing they saw on their screen during the government's rebuttal um, argument, final thing was a uh, screenshot of Rhodes saying that civil war is coming. Prepare your hearts, minds, and body. That was the last thing they saw. Is it credible? Then, is it credible for anybody to legitimately think that these guys were actually going to be in the act of overthrowing the government? And not a single one of them was armed. And there were no yeah. guns in their possession, even in hotel rooms in D.C. Well, not in D.C., correct. Not in D.C. They did have their quick, uh, quick reaction force was in, was uh, set up in Virginia. Right. Uh, they did have a hotel room full of weapons over there. But the thing that the public doesn't know about that, as scary and ominous as that sounds, is that for years the Oath Keepers, when they do security events and they do it in areas where guns are not allowed, and obviously D.C. is one of those uh, uh, restricted areas where, you know, uh, very unfavorable gun laws. And so as a result of that, they always set up what they call their QRF. And that's their quick reaction force. And this is always to be and only to be used in the event of an emergency. In this particular case, the QRF there was there in case there was a huge um, Antifa presence that came and tried to, you know, brought brought overwhelming force against uh, the protesters that were there that day, the, the people that attended the rally and the other events 
because there were other events going on that day. And that was the only purpose for that being there. But every single time that the Oath Keepers provided personal security detail operations for events in D.C., they, they always had a QRF across the river. They always, this was not special to the day. It sounds bad. sounds horrible. sounds like they were, like they were prepared you know, to, to uh, overthrow the government and, and storm the Capitol and uh, stop the election, except, Dan, that they didn't. <laughs> they, the, the three guys in this trial that actually walked inside the Capitol, they were in there for 17 minutes, got down on the knees, said a prayer, went and diffused a dangerous situation between an officer with an automatic rifle and a bunch of agitated protesters, and then they walked out. Let's fast forward for a second. Um, I know you pretty well. Is there going to be a tell-all with all of these things that you're talking about now? Is that already in the makings? Are you the guy that's going to do that? I, 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 <laughs> this reason I've not been able to sleep the last two nights. And when I say the last two nights, the last nine weeks, but the, the last two nights, especially because I feel the burden to do that. And I feel that I have to. And as a matter of fact, I was speaking to the attorneys last night and, um, you know, I let them know that I was going to be coming and I was going to be knocking on their doors and I was going to be interviewing them. And I was going to be, you know, after they've had a couple of months to process this and I would be coming to see them and we're going to get their stories and we're going to get how they really feel, you know, especially, you know, once things clear up and we can see things better in hindsight, uh, that's, that's going to be important. And, and as I said, just, I, I've got this, I've got my own notes from last night's verdict in front of me right here. I'm staring at it as I'm talking to you. I can see all five guys. I can see all the counts against them. I can see all of their verdicts. And, and Dan, it's going to take me weeks to figure this out. Now, I've already seen mainstream media reports that have already got it. You know, they've, they've, they've come to their conclusion about why certain guilties and not guilties came down, came down. But there's no way they can know yet. As I said, there are things that I'm staring at on this page that make no sense to me whatsoever. I don't, I cannot for the life of me, figure out why, as I said before, that Kelly Meggs has been convicted of all three conspiracy charges and Stuart Rhodes only the seditious conspiracy charge. And then when you jump down and you look at some of the others, they, they make no sense at all. Probably the, the two that got off the easiest are Ken Harrelson and Thomas Caldwell. And Thomas Caldwell um, was not a very sympathetic character, but it seems to be that the jury has given him a pass on most of the charges because of his age and his frailty. He is, he is a, a seriously injured. I mean, he has long-term 100% um, uh, service uh, disabilities, uh, service related dis- disabilities from his Naval service. He guy was actually blown up at an IED attack. And he, uh, he is an incredibly frail man. And uh, I, I, I look at the guy and he, and he also had the, when we talk about the scary language and the, the potty mouth and the braggadocious and the, 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 the crazy language. I mean, he, his language uh, was, was often more um, uh, braggadocious and, and bombastic than was uh, Stuart Rhodes. And for some reason he only was found guilty on a couple of the charges 
And then uh, it looks like that they did not get him on any. Well, yeah, they didn't get him on any of the conspiracy charges. Now, explain to our audience once more. You and I had this conversation before. The conspiracy charges, you keep relating that. Conspiracy charges. Explain in the context of what happened in this case or these five cases. Explain how conspiracy weighs in to what the results ended up being yesterday. Well, basically, you can be guilty of a conspiracy if you just come into an agreement with somebody else to commit a crime, even if you never commit the crime. That's the base. So if you and I decided today that you, we were going to go rob the first national bank and we were going to do it next Saturday, and then we talked about it and we put our plans together, and then one of us, you know, the better angels of our nature tapped us on the shoulder and said, no, you're not going to do that. And one of us said, no, let's not do that. But if in the process of that discussion, our conversations had been recorded by the federal authorities or even local authorities, we would still be guilty of a conspiracy to rob that bank. And we could face penalties for that. But see, for most Americans, that doesn't make any sense. Simply because thought crimes shouldn't be crimes because the only way to infer that there's any kind of reality there is to do just that. Infer. That's not a factual situation, and it just seems illogical to be able to charge these guys with criminal crimes that are going to send them to jail for 20-plus years just because somebody thinks they were going to do something. That just seems to be anti-constitutional to me. Well, it, it is, and then when you get to the seditious conspiracy charge. That was the big, that was the big golden ring that the government was hoping to, um, hand over to Merrick Garland and Nancy Pelosi and, uh, the Biden administration. And what they didn't get is they didn't get the second half of this important charge. And this is what makes no sense coming from the jury. And the jury did ask the question. There was in fact a jury question sent on Monday and that question was looking for a better definition, a a clearer understanding of that seditious conspiracy charge. And it has two parts. The first part is is that there has to be an agreement between at least two people or more to enter into this uh, thought about overthrowing the government. But the second part, Dan, is, is that it requires force. The law actually says that, that then there had to be an element of force initiated in the crime of this conspiracy. And that makes it the seditious conspiracy, except that Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs were both convicted, the only two of seditious conspiracy, and they never touched a soul. They never harmed a person. They never attacked a police officer. They never broke a window. They never pushed over a barricade. There was no force initiated by either one of these men. They got in just those two. So as I said before, it, it almost feels like that, um, the, that, that analogy of the dartboard is true. It, it also, it also feels like that this jury, even though it took them three days and it was, we only, we only had a half hour left of, of actual, you know, courthouse, uh, time left. We usually are dismissed by five o'clock every day. 
And then all of a sudden, right at uh, about 4.30, we get the notice that the verdict is in. And Wow. And then uh, the keyboards in the media room started typing furiously. And we started watching on our screens and seeing the, the courtroom beginning to fill up as the attorneys. And then finally the defendants. And then Judge Maida came in. And then the jury was brought in. And then they read these charges off in lightning speed. If I had not already had my, my worksheet set up, I basically had my scorecard already set up and ready. Um, but I, I was not expecting that last night. I, I thought we were going to get at least another day. Uh, but when they came back in three days, I said, I said, I thought that we would get another day, but my prediction has always been that this was going to happen on the third day. And that's exactly what happened. I felt like that the third day would be enough time. And a lot of people are going to criticize me for this, for saying this, and they're going to, they're going to call me a conspiracy guy. But I have said from the beginning that they've got to go at least three days to make it look good. Well, yeah, the jury couldn't come right back in. They would say, oh, it was a predetermined verdict. Yep. And it may have been, but they had to, like you said, make it uh, be drawn out for three days to make it mm-hmm. look legitimate. Uh, we're going to take a break. Before we go to break, tell us when you expect there's going to be sentencing in these cases. Well, they they have not announced that yet, so we don't know. And, and these, these things, you know, sometimes they take months yeah. before they get to sentencing. Yeah. And, and that has to do with, you know, just to, to be perfectly honest, the scheduling of the, uh, the district court and the fact that they're dealing with so many of these cases. You know, there's been over 950 arrests related to January 6th already, and that has the D.C. court system clogged uh, substantially. So there's no telling when Maida's calendar will get around to um, announcing the sentencing, but that, you know, that now is back on his desk and this is going to, this ball is back in his lap, his lap, as they say. I think it's trivial for me to make this statement, but I'll go ahead and make it. There are so many moving parts in this. This is a historical event. No question about it. January 6th was as well, but I'll just pontificate and say January 6th, wasn't as big a deal as this trial made it look to be. And here's my feeling as we go to break. Um, Everything's going to be appealed, obviously. And I think all of the stuff that comes out in appeal is not going to be covered in the media like it has been so far. I'll stop right there. Steve Baker with us now. When we come back, he was in the courtroom when the trials came out and the verdicts came out yesterday in the Oath Keepers trial. When we come back, Steve's going to tell us what his thoughts are about appeals and the basis that he's seen that makes it pretty certain they're going to be appeals, but they have some meat on the bone. That's up next. Speaking the truth, the left doesn't want you to hear. TNN, the Truth News Network. When it comes to online meetings, you're crushing it. But if you want to crush something that's a little more fun, why not play Best Fiends, the five-star rated puzzle game? Best Fiends is loaded with challenging puzzles that are so much fun. And you're never accidentally on mute. So take a stress break with the cutest characters on the planet and download Best Fiends for free from the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Play Best Fiends. Download free. 
You love chocolate. Mmm, chocolate. You love M&Ms. Oh, yes. But your tastes have grown up, and you're just not wild about super sweet milk chocolate, so you've been avoiding M&Ms. Yeah. Well, fear no more. Huh? M&Ms dark chocolate to the rescue. My heroes. M&Ms dark chocolate candies. Available wherever fine candies are sold. Steve Baker has become one of my favorite, most favorite people on the planet. He is like-minded, but uh, he's much more of a detail guy than am I. But we share a lot of commonalities. And Steve, let me just say this before you do the wrap-up. I want to say thank you for including us in all this because I don't take it for granted that it's such a big deal. We have just given you a place to give us the facts that we're not as you heard in that CBS story, Americans are not getting the facts. That should not surprise us. I mean, you're a journalist too. Uh, how often do you hear the media get it right, get it straight? Well, you know, just over the last eight, nine weeks of covering this trial and being in the room with an average of 20 to 30 uh, mainstream media journalists, I'm talking about all the biggies, uh, Everything from you know CBS, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, right, you know AP, Reuters, right down the line, is that often I would read their stories after a day's worth of trial hearings, and I would read those stories at night, and I'd read them the next morning, and I would ask myself, "Am I watching the same trial that these guys are <laughs> looking at?" That proves this, the, this, that that proves the point. Truth doesn't it absolutely really, does. Yeah, truth is not the necessary element in a good news story. It's the way somebody paints the truth to look and appear to be to their audience, whatever that audience is and whoever it is. Facts are secondary. Yeah. And there's no there's no doubt that different people see the world uh, through a, a different uh, prism or you know different shade of color in their glasses. But it's it's one of those things where when I an absolute fact is presented in a courtroom and it is a powerful, maybe exculpatory piece of evidence that has been shown to the jury, shown to the judge. And then the next morning they leave that out. The, the, the mainstream media just kind of overlooks that. <laughs> and they only focus on what the prosecution presented that day. And and a lot of us believed that ultimately the fix was in on this trial anyway. But, you know, you, you don't want to, you, it's like, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. And, and we, you and I have talked about this over the last nine weeks is that there were, there were, there were days where I looked at judge Maida with an incredible amount of admiration and respect just for his intellect and the way he handled the courtroom. And then there were other days when I saw the other side of him and I saw the manipulation of evidence. I saw the, 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 the motions that he would deny and are the evidence that he would not allow into, um, uh, or to be shown to the jury. And I saw that, and, and you just can't help but go, what is going on here? And, and then when you see, the press walking in lockstep basically with the government's narrative itself. And you see the press writing only what the prosecution presented 
as evidence or the prosecution's uh, witnesses were presented in their stories, then you you have to you have to wonder if they're if they're not working together. And and there there were those that did break rank every once in a while. They broke ranks with the with the herd. And when they did, I would walk up to them and I would say, "Hey, great story last night. You covered that really well. You, you were you were fair. You were accurate, and I appreciate it." I don't know what they thought about me yeah, saying that to yeah. them, but, uh, but I would, when, when I read a good story that was fair and accurate, I, I gave them credit where credit was due. Well, you and I both know this, what I'm about to say, but if you are in the Potomac Valley and you're in media and you want to have a future, you have got to fundamentally go into every situation you go into with this. I must be willing to politicize the way that I report on this event, if I don't do that, I'm only going to have one or two places to go in the future, Fox News or Newsmax, because I'm not going to be able to exist in any other place. They're not going to have me there. It's sad, but that's the world in which we live now. It is. Well, buddy, um, (laughs) I know you're tired. I know you're weary. (laughs) But I know there's a lot ahead. We know there will be appeals, and you'll keep us posted on that. Um, Steve has been doing with me a special feature every Tuesday. He's an investigative journalist. That's what he does. And I know even though the Oath Keepers trial is completed now, you're not going to quit. There's going to be a lot of other stuff. So we expect to see you, if not next Tuesday, you give us a notice of when you're ready to come back and uh, pick up the reins again to get into the conspiratorial things that we Americans, <laughs> we, we don't see. You've got that right. look. You've got that eye that many of us don't have. I'm a, I'm a journalist, but I don't have it. But there's plenty of stuff going on that our audience needs to know about. I want to thank you for being with us as you have been. And I want you back. If you want, you want to come back Tuesday. Let me know. We'll we'll do it. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Maybe buddy. by next Tuesday, I'll know what I'll know where on the planet I'll be next. <laughs> well, we'll be with you wherever that is. All right. Thanks, Dan. Get some rest, Steve. Yeah. Steve Baker. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in his shoes now, just because he's got to he's got to find a way to wade through all this stuff, and the stuff he's wading through is a bunch of poop. First of all, because he's in Washington, D.C., and I'll probably get in trouble for saying that. But you got to fall in line. If you're in media, you got to fall in line. You got to toe the company line. You've got to s- subscribe to the beast, the Potomac Valley beast, and you got to be willing to feed it with what you're doing when you go there. That is our government. Now, this next story, it illustrates exactly what I just said. Listen to this. Yesterday, in a Supreme Court immigration case, the Biden administration argued that states, you know, states, those 50 things that feed Washington, D.C., the Biden administration argued that states have no standing to sue the federal government over illegal immigration policies. And courts, they told the Supreme Court this, Courts lack the power to strike them down anyway. Now, this one rings true to me, especially because it involved Louisiana's Attorney General, Jeff Landry, along with 
Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton. They sued the Biden administration over immigration policy, and they argued that so-called enforcement guidelines as developed and administered by the DOJ and the Homeland Security Department violate certain provisions of federal law. And I'll make my position clear on that by saying, duh, (laughs) we've said this all along. The Biden administration just needs to enforce immigration laws. We won't be having all these immigration problems that we have if they just enforce the laws. We don't need any new laws, Mr. Biden. We need you to enforce the current ones. So my state in Texas, joined by three dozen more states filing supporting briefs, sued under the Administrative Procedure Act, it's called the APA, which in 5 U.S.C. 706, Section 2, Section A, which authorizes judges to hold unlawful and set aside, which means to vacate agency actions that are arbitrary, capricious, or otherwise not in accordance with law. It is the law most commonly used to sue federal agencies for acting inconsistently with federal laws that are passed by Congress. At issue or provisions of immigration law where Congress said authorities shall detain aliens who are convicted of aggravated felonies. The Biden administration hadn't been doing that. The Biden administration issued a guidance memo that says that instead aliens should be detained only if the agency determines they're a threat to public safety listing various factors for making that determination. In other words, they're trying to dumb down the law. Judge Drew Tipton of the Southern District of Texas rendered judgment in favor of the states vacating the policy. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, that's down in New Orleans, they affirmed, and the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. So the Biden folks They argued in response, states have no standing to bring such a lawsuit at all in court. And courts lack the constitutional power to do what the states were asking anyway. Quote, now it's our job to say what the law is, not whether or not it can be possibly implemented or whether there are difficulties there. That's Chief Justice John Roberts. He said that to U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Preloger. Preloger. And I don't think we should change that responsibility just because Congress and the executive can't agree on something that's possible to address this problem. I don't think we should let them off the hook. So when Roberts explained that he thought shall in Section 1226 means shall... Preloger responded by saying, giving effect to the words of Congress's immigration law, quote, would be incredibly destabilizing on the ground, adding that it would absolutely scramble immigration enforcement efforts on the ground. Preloger also shocked the justices across the spectrum by arguing that Section 706 of the APA did not give courts the power to vacate agency actions, despite the little, small, tiny, hidden fact 
that there have been thousands of cases doing just that over the past 80 years, many of which have been affirmed by the Supreme Court over the lengthy period. That sweeping claim of executive power to escape judicial review is fairly radical, Chief Justice Roberts said. I think he's being kind when he says that, fairly radical. So the brand new Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson seemed to agree, telling Preloger of the conceptual problem I'm having with your argument, she said, that courts do not have power to fully set aside such agency regulations and orders, explaining that Congress has said in the APA that in order to make valid and legally binding policies, agencies have got to follow certain procedures. And that when an agency fails to do that, what the agency did is void. And the government has never made this argument in all the years of the APA. Justice Brett Kavanaugh said, calling it a pretty radical rewrite of the principle of federal law that defines the power of federal agencies. And I find it pretty astonishing that you come up here and make the main part of your submission, and I'm going to push back pretty strongly, Kavanaugh said. So where was Alito in this? Well, he balked at the Justice Department's argument that states lack standing under Article Three to sue federal agencies under circumstances like these. He apparently rejected Preloger's argument, saying it meant that an injury sufficient for Article Three for purposes for an individual or for a private entity is not sufficient in your view for states, calling it a special rule that disfavored states in court. Justice Elena Kagan, also focused on the issue of standing, but leaning the opposite direction, expressing skepticism that Texas and Louisiana had standing to bring this matter to court, saying it's hard to think of federal policies that states could not challenge in federal court if they could, as the states did here, come up with a dollar amount of damages the state claim resulted from a federal policy, calling such claims of harm speculative. Now, remember who and what's going on here. This is Alina Kagan, and she's saying Texas and Louisiana, they don't have standing to come up with the dollar amount that Joe Biden's immigration policies, which basically say we're not going to enforce immigration laws. She says, you can't come up with the dollar amount. That's not speculative. It occurred. Kavanaugh also had questions for Stone, looking for a limiting principle for the court's decision if the justices ruled in favor of the states. And he said that he was concerned with the court's order would say if federal agencies must achieve results that they do not have the resources to accomplish. Stone replied, that's not an issue here because there is an on-the-record finding of bad faith that the Biden administration was deliberately not trying to achieve the results required by law, arguing that when a court determines that an agency is deliberately not trying to follow the law, that courts can strike down the policy that is inconsistent with how the law is written. The case has far-reaching consequences beyond immigration, although on that topic alone, it would still be a major case. And a decision is expected by the end of June. 
And by the way, if you want to look it up, the case is United States v. Texas, number 22-58 in the Supreme Court of the United States. And I got to be honest with you, I am, I'm not an attorney, but I like to um, learn things as I move through my very young life of only 69 years. And I'm being facetious when I say that, but I like to look through and find and understand our laws and how the courts look at our laws, both state and federal. And let me just trivialize this for you and just say this. None of this would happen. Our Supreme Court would be moving on and dealing with some really substantial issues and cases if only, if only the Department of Homeland Security and this administration, I'm talking about Joe Biden, would enforce federal immigration laws that are passed by the only constitutional policy board that can make laws, that would be the United States Congress. Congress passed the laws. Joe Biden was in Congress since 1970. That's when he went into the Senate, youngest senator ever, 1970, which means he was involved with making all these immigration laws that he's refusing to enforce right now. Is that a conundrum or is that just the definition of insanity? He probably doesn't even remember those laws were made while he was in the Congress. And I'll bet you he voted for every one of them. (laughs) I'll bet you he did. Because he, of course, is a constitutional attorney. If you don't think so, just ask him. He's not, but he would say he was in the right circumstances. Now, I mentioned in the first half hour of the show today that I'm expecting unemployment to go up exponentially. I'm expecting job losses to go through the roof. Why is that? Well, look at what's already happened. Twitter's cutting 50% of its workforce, 3,700 jobs. Facebook is cutting 11,000 jobs, its largest round of layoffs ever. Snap is cutting 20% of its workforce. That's 1,200 jobs. Shopify is cutting 10% of its workers, 1,000 jobs. Netflix already cut 450 jobs. Microsoft and Salesforce are each cutting 1,000. Robinhood is cutting 31% of its workforce. Tesla, 10% of salaried workers gone. Lyft is cutting 13% of its workforce, 700 jobs. Redfin is cutting 13% of its workforce. Coinbase, cutting 18% of its workforce, or 1,100 jobs. Stripe, 14% cut, 1,000 jobs. Add to these massive cuts, Belelo says Amazon has announced a hiring freeze. Apple has paused almost all hiring. And Google is reducing new hiring by 50%. But here's the really scary part. If you didn't listen to any of the above, listen to this. According to Bill Bonner, a 73-year-old ultra-successful entrepreneur whose companies employ thousands around the world, these layoffs are just getting started and are just the beginning. In fact, Bonner says the next phase of this crisis 
is going to come from a place few people are even thinking about right now. Bonner says what's looming close on the horizon will catch almost everyone by surprise and could lead to some very difficult years in American history. Every informed American needs to listen. You're unlikely to hear this anywhere else, and the mainstream press likely won't report on it for many months to come, and that's when it's far too late. You can get the facts. Don't get caught flat-footed. Bonner says there are four critical steps every American should take immediately to prepare for what's to come. Massive layoffs, collapsing stock prices are just the beginning. We're in a very strange period of time in America right now. Bonner says it's about to get worse. What are those things? Well, you're going to have to sit tight. I'll give them to you, but only after this at TNN Live. Computer, execute 12.4p operation. Optimizing algorithm. Running encryption packet alpha. Night, night. Oh, I don't feel so good. What? What is it, computer? Is it hot in here? It feels hot in here? I feel a little clammy. I should lie down or something. A computer with a virus? Surprising. What's not surprising? How much you could save by switching to GEICO. Those oysters Rockefeller were a mistake. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. See the bold new expression of sporty style. Hear the amazing quietness of a truly luxurious cabin. Feel the exceptional horsepower and amazing torque. And experience greater acceleration than ever before. Behold, the most powerful sedan in its class. The new Toyota Camry. Real power, absolute performance. Discover the new Camry at toyota.com.my. In every age, a technology is created that upends the foundations of society. The wheel, the printing press, the internet. Now, in a world sliding into financial chaos, a new technology is changing the way monetary systems work around the world. It is called Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a new form of money, controlled not by banks, governments, or corporations, but through mutual commerce between free individuals. To learn more, visit WeUseCoins.com. Drinking water is essential to your health. That's why you need to drink plenty of water to keep you hydrated throughout the day. Unlike power drinks or soft drinks, water is truly the only drink that can quench your thirst. It's an easy, refreshing way to keep your body healthy and strong. Freshen up today with a brisk, cool bottle of water. Election cycles come and go. White House reporters come and go. The truth is a diamond because it's forever. TNN, the Truth News Network. Your jeweler today is Dan Newman. Tell you what I'm going to do. Those uh, four things are really detailed, and I'm not messing with you. I've got them right here, and if you're interested in it, just drop me an email, dan at truthnewsnet.org. Dan at truthnewsnet.org. And just say this in the subject line, four things. And I'll turn around and send you back exactly where this came from. Dan at truthnewsnet.org. Dan at truthnewsnet.org. 
Bible.org. It's very detailed. It doesn't just give you the four highlights, but it explains those things. And so if you want to get them from somebody that's way smarter than me, just drop me an email and say four things in it, and I'll turn around and send that link right back to you. Well, gosh, the day goes so stinking fast here. We have so much going on. I want to make sure we don't miss any of the really important stuff. So guess what Joe Biden's bragging about today? He boasted in a speech last night. Listen to what our president has done. It's a really big deal. He boasted about ordering release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and he's doing it to address inflated gas prices. Listen to what our president said. This is a direct quote. Across the country, the common price at the pump is $2.99 a gallon, which is a lie, by the way, but he said it. It's much higher here, and the prices continue to go down. This isn't accidental, Biden said. We've been on this for months. Remember, I got criticized in the face of Putin using energy as a weapon. It took some decisive action. I ordered the largest ever release from the petroleum reserve, 180 million barrels of oil. And I rallied our international partners to come up with their fair share as well. That helped put pressure, downward pressure, on the price of gasoline because we're producing more gasoline that helps stabilize crude oil markets and reduce prices at the pump. Now, Biden did authorize the sale of up to 180 million barrels of oil from the reserves in March. That was following Russia's February 24th invasion of Ukraine. Biden in the White House, they've often called increased gas prices the Putin price hike, which also they were blaming oil companies for high energy prices, but some experts have said Biden's hostility to fossil fuel production has fueled higher gas prices. He did release 10 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve back in October, putting it at its lowest level since the 1980s. And the average price of gas soared as high as $5.16 a gallon on June 14th. That's according to AAA. Well, the average price for a gallon of diesel remained above $5. But President Biden, he's got his finger on it. You know, the most ridiculous thing coming out of this administration about oil production, pricing of gasoline at the pump, and by the way, I, I, I neglected to even mention that, all 180 million barrels. You know, 180 million of anything, that's a lot. One would think that $180 million of oil that would last for months and months and months. If we sold that, we'd have it in our stockpile and we could just meet it out and make the prices go down. It's all about supply and demand after all, right? That's 10 days. It's 10 days. That's 10 days of oil consumption in the United States. And the president of the United States is up at a podium in Michigan last night, patting himself on the back by taking 180 million barrels of oil 
out of your strategic oil reserves. Now, what does that mean? That's for when we have tornadoes, we have rampant fires out west, we have hurricanes, flooding, all those kinds of things. And he's up there taking a victory lap. Now, let me get to the most important thing that has come out of this administration that you need to become aware of. 6,000, 6,000 oil drilling permits. They're just laying there. Why don't the oil companies jump all over those things and just start drilling? Let me walk you through the process. Assuming that these oil companies can trust this administration. You know, the administration that tells them every day, I'm going to end your operations. I'm going to end oil energy exploration, and we are no longer going to rely on oil at all in the nation. I'm going to put you out of business. That's the backdrop. So then what he's saying now is, Why didn't y'all take these 6,000 drilling permits and just go punching holes in the ground? Let me give you an example. Do you know what it costs to drill a a well? Now, assuming, of course, when you drill it, you're going to hit something, more than half of the wells that are drilled come back dry holes, but he doesn't think about that. Why? Because he's never been in business. He doesn't understand what it costs to do anything in business. He thinks when you go to Walmart, and you walk inside and you buy a loaf of bread and a half a gallon of milk, that it was just there, and somebody went and put it on the shelf, there it is. It works nothing like that. He does not understand it. Nobody at the top in his administration understands how it works. Everything is in a process. Back to the oil stuff. So let's just assume that we were back before Joe Biden was elected. Donald Trump was in office, and 6,000 new leases were put out there, made available. All companies jump all over them. They fight for them. Why? That's how they make money. I'm sorry, Mr. Biden. Private companies exist to make money for their owners, to pay the salaries of their employees, to pay taxes, to fund health care for their staffs. How do you do that? You have a product, you have a service, you make it as good as you possibly can, make it exactly what people that are going to buy from you need and want, and you make it competitive in the marketplace of capitalism, and they sell it, goods and services, they have money, they pay their bills. But they don't have to worry, looking over their shoulders, that the most powerful man in the nation that has sole authority to say, I'm shutting you down, shut you down. No notice. That's what he did. XL Pipeline, bam, 4,000 jobs, gone, his first day as president. Is that going to instill some confidence in these oil companies that when he says 6,000 oil permits out there, y'all grab them and start drilling, start punching these holes. Some of those holes cost $17 million to drill and complete 
which means put the casing in there, put all the chemicals in the ground, the infrastructure, the piping and everything, and then you get oil. Then you get gas out of them, and you take that to the market. How do you take it to the market, Dan? You put it in a pipeline. You know, one of those things that he's already closed, several of. Pipelines. You got to have pipelines. You got to have product to put in the pipelines. This guy hasn't a clue about what it takes to run a business. You got to trust those that are in authority over you. I would think if there's one oil company in America that took his get those 6,000 permits and go do it. If they did it, their stockholders would fire them immediately because there's no guarantee there's going to be a company there tomorrow, next month, six months from now, because he said it in the last couple of weeks, no more drilling. And then let's talk about the other piece of 6,000 permits. That's just the beginning. Getting a drilling permit, that doesn't mean you can go out tomorrow and punch a hole in the ground. You've got to get other permits from state and local authorities to go drill these wells. The state, the federals, the feds have already done their um, um, EPA analysis of what it's going to do if drilling takes place in those places where those 6,000 permits cover. But the states haven't. The locals haven't. Can you imagine? I don't know where those 6,000 permits are, but can you imagine if one of them was in California? Do you know what it would take to get approval to actually drill a well? And then, by the way, when you drill it and you say, hey, we hit oil, we hit natural gas, you can't just take it to the market. You've got to go back and you've got to wait for the states to come back and make sure that they're, what you're going to be doing is environmentally safe to transport that oil and gas to the markets. That's called bureaucracy. The energy sector of our society, society is blanketed with federal bureaucratic responsibility and liability restrictions, restrictions by our federal government. Did he mention in doing away with any of that? No. I'm a business guy. If he really meant what he says about energy production, if he really did, there's somebody somewhere in his administration that understands the process and what it takes If he had that person and would let that person go do what they do, here's what would happen. Tomorrow, jets would fly into Washington, D.C., and CEOs of all these oil energy production companies would be in the Oval Office with President Biden, and he would look at them and say, gentlemen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, cut the red tape. No more permitting environmental processes to get these wells dug and completed and ready to ship, transport, whatever, however it's going to be gotten to the markets. I'm cutting all of that red tape out. 
you guys go do it. The American people need you like we've never needed you before. And as president of the United States, I'm taking every shortcut that we possibly can to get energy to the American people. The winner is here. We have no heating oil in the upper Midwest, the Northeast. We don't do it. We need you to get it there. How quickly can you get it done? I'm not going to stop it like I said before. I now understand fossil fuel energy is mandatory. We have to have it. We have to have you. He could never do that because the Green New Deal junkies would storm the White House and they would have all kinds of protests going on, tearing Washington, D.C. up as the climate alarmist would go nuts. So what does Joe Biden do? He lies about what he's done. He grossly misrepresents what he is doing now, and he certainly lies about what he's going to do in the future. Folks, our energy future is in shambles. The president of the United States has no clue. This renewable energy thing that he says he's going to have us all involved in by 2030, it's a myth. It cannot, it will not happen, period. And he's planning in two years to convince Americans that by then we'll be paying $6 a gallon for gasoline and $10 a gallon for diesel. Can you imagine these big trucking companies that are owned in large part by places and companies like Walmart and Target transporting their own goods and products around the nation, paying $10 a gallon for diesel? Who's going to make up the difference, me and you? Where are we getting that money? Well, if you're in business, you're going to have to tag it on to the prices of what you're selling it for now. Well, who's going to pay that? Moms and dads that have to go buy things like groceries, We've never had a president in my my lifetime that is so, I don't want to be derogatory, but is so hopeless at being able to understand the lives of average American people. He may have known it when he was young. He tells us he grew up in Pennsylvania and Delaware, wherever. Uh, I know all about backwoods and I know not having any money. I understand what that's all about. I grew up as a pauper, tells the stories all the, the time. He may remember the stories, but I guarantee you he doesn't remember the stuff that he lived through. If what he's telling us he lived through, he really did. If he did, he would understand what his policies and lack of policies are doing to you and your fellow Americans. Either that, or he just doesn't care. You take your pick. You know, somebody we don't hear much about, Marco Rubio. Rubio has gone postal over this uh, rail strike that is impending. In September, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh Marty brokered a tentative deal between the rail unions and carriers 
while Biden and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg were out of town. His work appeared to have averted what could be a costly rail strike, but the rank-and-file members of four of the 12 unions have rejected that tentative agreement. That's something Joe Biden lied about in the election, remember? Ah, we handled that. We took care of the rail strikes. Everything's okay. Monday, Biden called on Congress to impose the terms of the deal that union members had rejected. Rubio ripped Biden for the plea, stating that his belief the parties should negotiate new terms of the contract without congressional involvement. And Rubio pledged he would only vote for a deal that the union members support. Just because Congress has the authority to impose a a heavy-handed solution does not mean we should, Rubio said. It's wrong for the Biden administration, which has failed to fight for workers, to ask Congress to impose a deal the workers themselves have rejected. Rubio asserted that the whole episode highlights many of the ongoing problems with our economy, adding this, on one hand, Wall Street's drive for efficiency has turned rail workers into little more than line items on a spreadsheet. On the other hand, you have union leadership so disconnected from its rank and file that they struck a deal with their members that they can't support. Instead of relying on Congress to carry their water, the party should go back to the negotiating table, strike a fair deal that the workers can accept. So in calling on Congress to impose a contract, the president, who tells us he's a pro-union Democrat, has effectively disregarded the lingering sick time concerns of union members in fear of substantial economic consequences, which would have further negative impacts on Americans who have already been grappling with inflation not seen for decades. Rail companies, which would benefit from congressional intervention, they've estimated that some $2 billion every day would bleed from the American economy during a strike. And you understand, say they're wrong. Say it's not $2 billion. It's only uh, a billion five hundred million a day. Think about that. A strike would undermine the ability to move crucial chemicals, packaged food for us all, food for livestock, retail goods, all this as families ready for Christmas and Hanukkah, posing a potential political disaster for Joe Biden. Jared Cassidy. Cassidy, the alternate legislative director for Smart Transportation Division, he said last week that he had tapered his expectations regarding the rail company's willingness to further negotiate with unions. Cassidy added the congressional involvement gives the carriers leverage to withhold their concessions. I'm not optimistic about the railroad's willingness to negotiate for more, he said. I'm hopeful, but really not that optimistic. There's really nothing that obligates them to give more at this point. Now, back up for a second. Go up with me to the 10,000-foot level. Who are the players here? You got the workers, the ones that are running these trains. Think about those jobs. 
they're not real, you know, white collar where you go to work in a starch shirt and real high dollar alligator shoes. No, 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 no. They're blue collar jobs. These people work, they get their hands dirty. They work in real uh, greasy circumstances, but they're getting the job done, getting our needs to us and doing it in a very good way. And then you have the rail companies. They're privately owned companies that are there to make money. And so they have those employees that work for them and the employees are represented by unions. Now, unions represent employees. And you would think the president who claims to be a blue-collar guy and he's he's gotten millions of dollars of campaign contributions through the years, not from uh, these rail companies, but from the unions that represent these employees, the blue-collar employees. And so you would expect the unions would be backing up they're union members, right? And so to make sure they get the best shake, they make sure that they make the politicians that have the power and authority to negotiate these contracts with the pressure that they can put on different entities that are part of the contracts. So it's kind of like a vicious circle. Joe Biden claims to be a union guy, and yet he's out here right now and who's he supporting in all of this? He's not supporting anybody. What he's done, he's been getting money from the unions, and he's been getting money from the rail companies. When I say getting money, I'm talking about big campaign contributions. So he can't bite the hands that feed him. So what does he do? He passes the ball to Congress so that he, whatever comes out of the congressional operations, do they fix it? Do they screw it up? He doesn't have any liability anymore. And so Marco Rubio called his hand. Look, we're at a point now, it doesn't matter what comes out of this. You and I lose. It's going to cost us more for anything and everything on the other end of this. And if they don't work something out, what are we going to do? Where's that $2 billion a day come from in losses? It comes out of our pockets. We're not going to have stuff that we need. Normal everyday stuff and then normal stuff for the holidays. Bureaucrats. Why, oh why, do these unions even have the ability to make campaign contributions. That ought to be cut off immediately. But here's our problem. Who's got to cut it off and make it illegal? The U.S. Congress. Where does U.S. Congress, when they're campaigning, where do they get the money to campaign from? In large part, from these unions. You see the conundrum there? You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, and the people that get left out there are the blue-collar workers and you and me. Meanwhile, the Joe Bidens of the world, they're getting fat and sassy every year, getting more money from the lobbyists, 
that are representing these unions, the lobbyists that are representing these rail companies, and they get to just go like Pontius Pilate. You remember they took Jesus to Pontius Pilate and he ceremoniously got out a pail of water and he washed his hands in that clean water and said, like uh, Sergeant Schultz, I know nothing. I know nothing. I'm not responsible for any of this. Y'all work it out among yourselves. And there's another thing I want to get to. I don't want to forget this. The Senate rejected Senator Mike Lee's religious liberty amendment, as well as amendments offered from Senators James Langford of Oklahoma, Rubio of Florida, and they passed that so-called Respect the Marriage Act last night. The same-sex marriage bill passed 61 to 36 with the help of the same 12 Senate Republicans who initially voted with Democrats to advance the bill to be considered. The legislation, when they'll go back to the House, they'll vote as early as next Tuesday, but they're going to pass it. It already passed there over the summer with the help of 47 Republicans. So the House GOP is going to have to decide whether they want to pass this with the newly added, quote, no impact on religious liberty and conscience amendment that was created by a bipartisan group of senators who say the text protects religious liberty. But critics of this added amendment brought by Senators Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, a Democrat, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, a Democrat, Susan Collins of Maine, a Republican, Rob Portman leaving the Senate, he's retiring, he's a Republican from Ohio, and Tom Tillis, a Republican, who's also leaving from North Carolina. They say it will provide nothing that is not already guaranteed and is an unnecessary piece of legislation that provides for lawsuits against those who simply hold a different view on marriage. Lee's amendment was conservatives' greatest hope of shoring up religious liberty protections in the bill and would have prohibited the federal government from punishing individuals, organizations, not-for-profits, and other entities based on their sincerely held religious beliefs or moral convictions about marriage by prohibiting the denial or revocation of tax-exempt status, licenses, contracts, benefits, etc. Who wouldn't want to deny the federal government the authority to retaliate against religious individuals and institutions in a way that is categorically abusive, Senator Lee said before the vote? His amendment needed 60 votes. It fell 48 to 49, though several of the 12 Republican senators who voted with Democrats to advance the bill voted in favor of it. Lankford's amendment, which needed a simple majority vote, was also rejected, 45 to 52, as was Rubio's. The RFMA was introduced following the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade because Democrats' unfounded concerns that the Supreme Court could use the Dobbs decision to overrule the court's Obergfell gay marriage decision. Overall, the RFMA would repeal the Clinton-era Defense of Marriage Act and would require the federal government to recognize any marriage that was valid in the place where it was entered into. 
The bill would additionally require every state to recognize every same-sex marriage that is valid in the state where the marriage was entered into. The bill also has a private right of action clause, which would allow any person who is harmed by a violation of subsection B to bring a civil action in the appropriate district court of the U.S. against the person who violated such a subsection for declaratory injunctive relief. Likewise, attorneys general would be able to bring civil action against any person who violates the law. They passed this thing. Now, we've only heard the good parts of it, if you can call what I just told you a good part. It's not good. It's not good in any way. And the backlash is going to be far-reaching and be very, very egregious. Now, you know what they had in their back pockets? They stuck, as part of this bill, the funding of the Veterans Administration and all the benefits for our veterans, the dollars and cents to pay for all of that for the upcoming year. They stuck it in the same bill. Now, here's how the Democrat Party works. If this bill had not been passed, they wouldn't say the RFMA was was beaten. Yay! No gay marriage, no same-sex marriage. Moral beliefs are going to supersede, you know, the right, those rights, the Ten Amendment rights. Those are going to supersede. They wouldn't even mention that. If it hadn't passed, they would say Republicans voted not to approve the funding of the Veterans Administration and veterans' benefits for the upcoming year. Those evil Republicans, they don't care about the military members. They wouldn't even mention this. Blackmail. That's what it's called where I grew up. Blackmail. Just keep that in your back pocket because it's going to get ugly going down the road over that. Very quietly yesterday, the Biden administration vowed to give Ukraine some more bucks, $53 million, to help the war-torn nation acquire critical electric grid equipment in the middle of repeated missile attacks from Russian forces. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the funding during a meeting with NATO. This equipment will be rapidly delivered to Ukraine on an emergency basis to help Ukrainians preserve, persevere through the winter, he said. The supply package will include distribution, transformers, circuit breakers, surge arresters, disconnectors, vehicles, and other key equipment. And they could put a bunch of that $53 million in the same pocket that they put all that other money that Biden's given to them that was supposed to be out on the battlefield. And it's anywhere but out on the battlefield. Long live the courageous. The tenacious. The ones who push forward and give back. Long live the greater good. 
the helping hand, those who fall and get back up. And long live the truck with the strength to overcome. The will to outwork. And the commitment to outlast them all. Ram. Proven to last. Little Caesar's Thin Crust Pizza is so loaded with cheese and pepperoni you can't even see the crust. And if you ever want to see it again, listen very carefully. Bring $6.49 in unmarked bills or marked bills or coins or just a credit or debit card to Little Caesar's. Come alone and bring your friends or family. Bring everyone. Get a Little Caesar's Large Thin Crust Pizza with extra cheese and the most pepperoni, all at the nation's best price of just $6.49. Pizza, pizza. Top four national pizza chains. Extra most bestest thin crust pepperoni pizza versus large round one topping thin crust pepperoni pizza. Everyday standard menu prices at participating locations plus tax. Dunkin' is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Dunkin' with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Dunkin'. Sip into the fall season with the new pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Dunkin'. Price of participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusions apply. You remember who did this song? What's the name of the song? Spirit in the Sky. I bet you there's nobody listening to this show that will remember the name of the artist. Um, This was a medley of his hit. (laughs) That's another one of those one-hit wonders. Who was it? James Posey, you're out there listening. You're hacked off. I've got you very upset with the stories we've reported today. He's written several things. He is blasting our president for doing the things that he says he's going to do, doing some of the things that he's done, and talking about the release of the oil reserves. James said it's not his to give away. It's not giving it away, but still, it's not his. It's the American people, and it's for emergencies. That's why they call it that, emergency oil reserves, strategic oil reserves. Oh, well, that's just life. That was Norman Greenbaum. Norman Greenbaum. Have you ever heard of Norman Greenbaum? If you hadn't before, you have now. And we'll have a test on that the upcoming weeks. The 20 states in the U.S. that are offering one-time rebates and tax credits to their residents to help cope with inflation pain. Do you live in one of those 20 states? Well, let me tell you. You can figure out which ones they are. Let's start in the Pacific West, Oregon, Idaho, and of course California. And then in the... um, I guess we call this the near far west, Colorado and New Mexico, up north, Minnesota, Illinois and Indiana, and then from the top right working down, Maine, Connecticut, Delaware, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. 
And then, of course, New York, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. In response to all of the financial pain, states run by both Democrats and Republicans have tried to offer some temporary fixes, some tax cuts, and some rebates, with some targeting families and frontline workers. In California, Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom's recently approved state budget is offering inflation relief checks. Married couples with at least one dependent are getting as much as 1050 bucks from the Golden State's budget surplus, which will be either given as a direct deposit or a debit card. The checks, which are technically tax refunds, range from a $1,050 to $350 for single people who earn under $75,000 a year. Well, 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 that's a wrap on the day. What a day, huh? <laughs> what a day. And so I'm going to look over my shoulder. You look over yours with me. Remember a few years ago, our kids, even many of us, were juking to this. Justin Timberlake. I'm bringing sexy back. Yeah. The mother boys don't know how to act. Yeah. I think it's special what's behind your back. Yeah. So turn around and I'll pick up the slack. Yeah. Take up to the bridge. Dirty babe. You see these shackles, baby, I'm your slave. I'll let you with me if I misbehave. Yeah. Take them to the cars. Come here, girl. Go 
Sexy, yo. Get your 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 sexy, yo. Get